I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. The Drive Nation Podcast with Dan Prosser and Andrew Frankel. Before we get stuck into a handful of recent DN posts, Andrew, I just wanted to tell our wonderful podcast audience that DN is now on Patreon. Woo! Um, <laughs> yeah, we, it, it took us two years to get up on there, but we've, we've finally done it. Um, for people that don't know, Patreon is a platform that allows, and it's a horrible term, but it does apply, content creators like us to invite their audiences to contribute a small amount of money each month just to help make whatever it is that content creator does more sustainable um, short term and long term and that, that's that's how it applies to us really we're inviting anyone who wants to contribute uh, to DN to making it more sustainable now and to allow Andrew and I to make it bigger and better in the future um, to, to do so. Uh, people can choose how much or how little they want to contribute um, and in return uh, all our patrons are going to get weekly articles from Andrew and I um, exclusively there'll be weekly articles that that we'll do reviews we'll do uh, we'll do opinion pieces we'll do features similar to the stuff that we do on Instagram uh, but these will be a bit longer and a bit more in-depth and for patrons only so if anyone does want to to contribute Go along to patreon.com forward slash drive nation um, and you'll find us there. If, if you're minded to, if you can afford to, we'd be so grateful for any support that you can give. Um, Anything I, to add? Well, well, only that um, just so people um, understand where we are. Um, you, 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 um, if you follow us um, on Instagram, you will have seen a few sponsored posts and that sort of thing. So you will be aware that DN is, is earning a little bit of money, but it's not, a, it's not a free thing for us to do. We have to promote stuff. We have to buy in stuff. Um, and, and just so you know that to date, although we're nearly two years in, uh, Dan and I have yet to see a single penny um, out of the business. So we're, we're not paying our we are still doing this absolutely free gratis and for nothing and because we love it um so you know you're not really you know, what, what we're asking is 
really for an investment in DN. It's not investment in Dan and me. It's so that this thing, which I think um, well, we certainly love, and there are you know certainly tens of thousands of other people out there who seem to appreciate it. It's just so that we can keep on doing it. Um, and it's as simple as that. So if you can support us um, on Patreon, uh, yeah, Dan and I would be absolutely chuffed to bits. Yeah. It's patreon.com forward slash drive nation. You'll also find a link directly there um, on in our bio on our Instagram page at drive nation underscore. Um, and yeah, to everybody who has pledged so far, thank you so much. It's enormously humbling. Um, fine. Well, that's that done. Shall we? Promo crack over. On? Exactly. Let's crack on and let's talk about. Um, well, the biggest story, the biggest post on DN in the past week or so, and it, very sadly, Andrew, it's the passing of um, Hans Metzger, the the revered Porsche engineer. Yeah, you see, I I just wonder whether you know, outside the world of uh, you know diehard car enthusiasts, DNers, and everything, that's just how revered he is. I mean, I think there are lots of people out there who've probably heard of you know, the Colombo engines and Ferraris and Lampredi engines and that sort of thing. But I just wonder whether Metzger ever got the worldwide recognition as one of the absolute all-time great engineers of this business that, you know, that his achievements deserve. Um, and it's, you know, it's it's very interesting that, you know, I just posted a little piece on DN when uh, we heard that he'd sadly passed away uh, at the age of 90. Uh, the response has just been amazing. Um, and I think among those who know, um, you know, I, the greatest engineer of our era, um, I mean, you know, you could say Ferdinand Piek because, you know, Metzger and him worked um, hand in hand, side by side for many, many years. And it's quite hard to uh, divorce the work of one from the other. But yeah, I mean, he's right up there, isn't he? Yeah, there's no question about it. He's also part of that cabal of engineers and Porsche folk who started at the company in the very, very early days in the 50s and then just didn't go anywhere. They stuck around. And it, I, I just, it must have been an extraordinary thing to witness firsthand, this, this company going from, you know, a small sports car maker building 356s, progressing through the 60s, 70s, 80s and so on, watching it win Le Mans countless times, watching it really take over the sports car world. Absolutely. Particularly with the 911. What a thing to have observed firsthand. Yeah, I mean, and also, you know, for him, you know, for given his, his involvement in the 911, to see that, you know, that little overhead cam, two litre flat six that he was so involved with. Um, and again, I don't think many people realise Metzger was absolutely integral to the, you know, everybody thinks about the Metzger engine, which we, I'm sure we'll come to um, later on in the podcast. Um, but, you know, he was there, he was there at the get go. And this little engine that he, as I say, he was, you know, who, whose design he was integral to. Um, and just to see, you know, up until, you know, his death, whatever it was, you know, 57 years later, you know, a flat six engine still being in the back of a 911. That, I mean, he must, that, he must have been chuffed by that every time he saw one <laughs> growl past in the street. Um, and then, I mean, the, the stuff that he did between those poles. And as you say, you know, coming to Porsche as a man in his, well, he was actually in his late 20s, wasn't he, in the late, in the, in the late 1950s. And here was this still very little company making 356s and, you know, sort of 550 spider race cars. And then, you know, within a decade, you got a 917. I mean, it's, it is pretty extraordinary. Um, and, you know, and, and I think you could absolutely, I mean, for instance, um, 
one of the things that um, he was very involved with. The Again, this isn't very well known. Uh, the engine that went into the 911 wasn't the one that was originally designed for it. In the 1950s, as they were working on this car, they designed it, it was an air-cooled flat six, but it had push rods. It had very long push rods. Um, which, and if that engine had made it into production, um, the engine would never have revved. You could never have tuned it. You certainly couldn't have raced it. And the entire history of Porsche might have been, you know, rather different. And, you know, Metzger was, was one of the guys who took a look at this engine when he turned, when he turned on and just went, hang on, you know, if it has to have two camshafts, why not just put them where they're meant to be? Um, and stick them in the cylinder heads. Um, and they did. And that engine was born. And the rest, as they say, is history. Oh, a hell of a legacy that he had, yeah. wasn't it? So, and after, can you remember off the top of your head, Andrew, how soon after joining Porsche was he put in charge of the racing division? Uh, I don't know. Oh, well, I, think I, I don't know, I'm afraid, off the top of my head, the exact date that he um, turned up. But I think it was uh, very late in the 1950s, maybe 59, something like that. Um, and we know that the first thing that he became known for, even before the... 911 engine was working on the air-cooled um, flat eight engine that was used in the 804 Grand Prix car, the car that won the 1962 French Grand Prix with Dan Gurney um, driving it, um, then and now the one and only World Championship Grand Prix that a Porsche has has ever won. So he did that. He then went and worked on the 911 engine, and then in 1965, um, you know, the sort of proper racing department that we know of, which built all those crazy space frame cars um from then on so like after the 904 um but from the 906 onwards yeah he and piek um went and headed up that department and from there on in you know right up until you know his you know his retirement in you know in in the early 1990s uh you know he was the man he wasn't the only man but if there was one man who could call himself the man i guess it was metzger yeah absolutely um the, what so what's his overarching achievement though i mean is it is it the the tag Formula One engine that won so many races with McLaren? Is it that nine oh one engine that ultimately became the nine eleven engine, or is it the the nine seventeen and Porsche's first two outright victories at Le Mans? Well, I mean, overarching achievement. I think the, the his achievement is so. This this is going to this is an ultimate cop out answer to your question. <laughs> um, is, is the excellence that he applied to, he applied to absolutely everything that he did. Um, you know, if you look at, uh, I mean, just take, I just want to think of an example. You take the, the first 917 engine, okay? It came out in 1969, four and a half litres. It had 580 horsepower. Um, and uh, as long as you didn't over-rev it, it was, it was pretty much bomb-proof. Okay, now that was a four and a half litre engine with two valves per cylinder because, because it was air-cooled, there wasn't enough space um, to cool the heads with four valves per cylinder. So they were very restricted on the cylinder head design. And you, know, you look at the Ferrari engine that um, Maranello created to rival it, the five litre, so a big air engine, V12, with four valve heads that went into the 512S. Um, that never had, that had about 540, 550 horsepower. So, you know, a bigger engine with, you know, four valve cylinder heads, um, and a Ferrari engine. And, you know, and it never got near what Metzger managed to achieve, you know, with air cooling two valves per cylinder and, and a smaller engine. So, and, and, you know, and they were just so reliable. You know, the 91730 engine, the 1100 horsepower monster that totally and utterly dominated Can Am in 72 and 73. I mean, they just, they just never went wrong. 
Um, and you look at the domination of the 956s and the 962s in Group C in the 1980s. You know, what is the outstanding characteristic? I mean, I, they, never, they didn't never go wrong, but they were so reliable. They were, they were just better than everything else. They were faster. They were more reliable. Um, they even worked out how to make them use less fuel because, you know, Group C was, a, was very much a, you know, a fuel efficiency formula. Um, and so Justin, all the answer to your question is, what, made, what was his contribution? It was just excellence in everything he did from a little two-litre flat six in 1963 to you know the Metzger engine that went out of production with a four liter 997 GT3 RS in whenever it was 2011 I think I mean what a legacy extraordinary unbelievable unbelievable isn't it um okay well it's it's also true though that he he had um responsibility not just for the 917's engine but for the the project overall yeah, absolutely. I mean, all those cars, um, you know, when he went to the racing department in 65, he didn't go there just to, you know, to make engines. You know, the, all those amazing cars, you know, the, the, the 906, the 907, the 908, the, the insane 909 Berg Spider, the 910, um, obviously the 917. I mean, they were, again, you, know, you can't say that they were all his work, um, but, you know, they were all done on his watch. Um, and and in their way, I mean, they took Porsche from being a sort of bit player competing for, you know, class honours um, to the most revered, successful manufacturer of sports racing cars in the world. Um, and, you know, and, and as I said earlier, it's, you know, it, it's not fair to say it was all Metzger, um, but it's certainly also not fair to say it was all Pieck, um, you know, between them and with everybody else. They, they made history. They absolutely made history. And they put Porsche's name on a map in a way that I'm sure... Um, you know, back at the start of that decade, um, you know, Ferry Porsche couldn't have imagined. So what we now need to address, Andrew, is the fact that you being perhaps the most fortunate person I know, you've driven, (laughs) you've driven 917s more than once. Yeah. So you're, you're going to have to give us a couple of minutes now on what that experience is like, because having not done so myself, wow, I just can't imagine. Okay. Um, so these things, they all depend on the environment. Um, and there have been other racing cars I've driven where, you know, you've had a very understandably nervous owner who says, oh, no more than this number of revs, no more than that number of laps. You've got to keep off the curbs. You can't, you know, push hard or anything. Uh, and, it, and where I feel, I feel as lucky to have been driven, allowed to drive both 917s as hard as I liked as I feel lucky to have driven a 917. Because to have gotten into a 917 and not been able to drive it properly um I, I i always sort of make the analogy of taking the cork out of a bottle of you know chateau lafitte and only being allowed to sniff the contents it's um <laughs> so, so so the first one was richard atwood's car it was a long time ago at silverstone this uh, it looked like the car in which he won Le Mans in 1970 it was to exactly that specification but it was actually its sister car so this was chassis 22 and I think 23 won the race um but it was it was it was one of the cars that was in the Le Mans Steve McQueen movie and then got sold to Reinhold Yost who raced it a bit um and and I can just remember getting in that and this was as cooking a 917 as you can get four and a half liter car four speed gearbox short tail um, you know, the most boring 911. This, this was the LX version, was it? Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> and and it just totally and utterly blew my mind. Um, you know, I was I was at Silverstone. I had the circuit to myself. Um, the weather was lovely. It was quite cold, but you, um, we actually ran it on wets and so you could get some heat into the tyres. And, and the amazing thing was it didn't scare me. It just didn't scare me because, you know, they'd sorted out 
um, the aero by then. Um, I think the chassis was a bit stiffer too. And it was just the most, you know, because, you know, you know what that noise is like because you've heard the McQueen movie, you know, you, you, you've watched the McQueen movie and, and you've heard the sound. And to be in it, and it's just this sense of privilege. You can barely believe it. It's such a tiny little thing as well. They had to take the seat out for me to um, to drive it, but that was okay. And yeah, so I what do you met- say? You just sat on some tubes or something? Uh, yeah, well, I think well, well, no, they put some foam in, so I, I was reasonably well located. But I can remember we were only using the national circuit, which was so you got the old pit straight and cops, and then. But I can remember it still did over 170 miles an hour three times a lap, around a really short lap. And this was, you know, this, this was a car that was, you know, built in 1969. Um, so, yeah, I mean, the sense of occasion. And Richard Atwood, that was the other thing. Atwood was there. And his, 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 literally the only thing he was bothered about was whether I'd, he, I felt I'd have a, had a proper go. And he kept on saying, yes, but have you had a proper go? <laughs> and I was going, well, I think so, Richard. You know, well, get out there and try harder. Um, he was incredible. He's one of those, those former racing drivers who really gets how much people like you and I just sort of idolise that era of racing and the, and the guys like him who raced those cars in period. He just understands it, doesn't he? Yeah, and of course you could never have the experience because let's not forget when he won Le Mans in 1970, there were, what, 50, 60 other lunatics on the track. The ra- it was 24 hours, you had to race it at night, it rained most of the time. I mean, it's, it, you cannot do what I did and think you have any idea at all of what he went through. But nevertheless... You've driven a 917 and Richard Atwood is there saying, get back in the car and drive it harder. Um, and, and, and I suppose the other memory of it is, um, is, is just that Porsche approach because, you know, this car is a very old car and yet, you know, it starts with a key. No, you know, special sequence of switches and pumps to prime and widgets to do this and that and the other. You just turn it. You literally, it's like you start a 917 the same way that you start a 911 or indeed a Ford Fiesta. And, you know, synchromesh gearbox, um, you know, because Porsche understood that, you know, easily the least reliable component in any car is, um, you know, is the one that you know, sits behind the steering wheel and operates it. So you make life easy for him. Um, proper ventilation, all that sort of stuff. They just thought of that because you know, they realized these things had to be driven by um, not just professional race drivers in sprint races, but gentlemen drivers who may have more money than talent you know, over 24 hours. And um, yeah, so that was that. Um, and the other one was yeah, the 917.30 at Goodwood um, last year. And I don't know whether I banged on about that in a podcast um, yet, but that was... Um, I don't think you have, so I th- I, let's, let's get stuck into it. So this was, this was the 50th anniversary celebrations. Yeah, 50th anniversary of the 917. And, and, and actually, I mean, I'd like to say they gave me the most powerful one because they thought I was a superhero. In fact, it was an entirely practical thing because it was, <laughs> they gave it to me because it was the only one which didn't have a roof. So I could stick out the top and there was, you know, I'd have some chance of being able to drive it because if anybody doesn't know me, I'm, I'm, I'm six foot four. So these things are always a bit of a challenge. Um, and it wouldn't start. Uh, there were five 917s there. Dickie was in a 917.10. Harris was in. Uh, the car they call the taxi, the Gulf 917, probably the most successful of them all, which is still owned by the factory. And it's called the taxi because they used to go and scare the wits out of you know visiting executives when they used to come to Visac in the early 70s <laughs> by just giving them lift around the track in this thing. Um, and there was, uh, I think it was Mark Webber in the original 001 917. And they all fired up beautifully. And the 91730, which I wish to drive, which was, you know, an absolutely reliable car at any other time, just wouldn't start. Um, and it wouldn't start. And they, they, they just tried everything. 
and mm, the other cars had God. gone to the assembly area and they'd been they'd spent half a day trying to get this thing to go um and in the end um i think somebody from goodwood just turned up with a land rover an old land rover and a rope and we towed it through the paddock you know people i mean it was health and safety i mean out the window with you know people scattering left right and center and then suddenly um there was this bang which was all the stuff they'd stuck in the engine to try to get it to start all going igniting at the same time and then after that there it was just it was honestly you know um you know other than getting married and watching my children going being born it was it was one of the happiest moments of my life that just hearing the sound of that 1100 horsepower 5.4 litre flat 12 motor happily sort of running away to itself just warming up and as, as, you know butter wouldn't melt as if nothing i mean i'd almost had a heart attack waiting for that thing harris actually um here's the mark of a true mate i i was tearing my hair out wandering up and down the, this line of all these other 917s i you know and knowing i wasn't going to get to drive one and harris flipped open the door of the taxi and said what's the problem and i explained to him and he just started undoing his belts and said i have this one um and I didn't, and I never would have done, and I couldn't have got into it. But instinctively, his his reaction was just have this one, which I just thought was um, amazing. Anyway, um, so I got in this thing, and you know, I'd spoken to a lot of people who'd driven it, um, and they all said one thing. And these are, you know, unlike me, proper professional racing drivers. Uh, you know, Derek Bell, Richard Atwood. I think I spoke to Dario Marino, um, and they all just said, "Don't worry, it's fine." And I'm going, "Yeah, really? Eleven hundred horsepower." Um, you know, a nine seventeen. What space is the car range, weigh? Uh, Eight fifty, I think. Oof, I mean, wow. nothing. And they just said, "Don't worry, it'll be fine." And it's just one of those cars that I wasn't out the first corner before I suddenly realised it will be fine because it just did. It just felt what it was, which was after it was you know it was in its fourth year by then. It just felt like a thoroughly developed racing car i mean in 1969 as i'm sure lots of people listening to this will know um, i mean the car was you know tricky is putting it very very mildly indeed i mean some would say it was lethal in fact it did kill a bloke called or a bloke called john wolf the first ever privateer driver of a 917 did get killed in one literally on the opening lap of lamore in 1969 um, he crashed at white house um, and his co-driver a bloke called digby martland who's actually an old family friend of mine had gone down there and he'd driven the thing in practice and spun it down the end of Molsan uh, and just mercifully didn't hit anything, got it back to the pits, got out the car and said, I'm not driving this and if you've got any sense, neither should you. And Digby went home and so they they lent John Wolfe Herbert Linger, the test driver, um, and they begged Wolfe to let Linger start the race because he'd been racing Porsches at Le Mans for donkey's years and wolf said nope sorry my car my race uh, you know if it goes bang i won't get to drive it so i'm going to start and tragically um you know his race and and the rest of his life lasted less than one lap um but anyway so, so I've, got, I've got completely sidetracked um yeah so, so the so the 30 yeah um we we had dicky and i had a bit of a problem in fact in, in that there was another bloke there in a in an interseries 9710 who appeared to either be going shopping or not know his way around goodwood um <laughs> and we'd been told that if you overtook him it was a black flag offense and you would and and you would literally be hauled off the track if you overtook anyone um so we spent most of our time just sort of hanging back half a lap and then you know giving it the beans to try and catch up with this chap so uh weber and harris um who didn't have this problem because they'd started in front disappeared um, but I did get most of a lap driving a 91730 as hard and as fast as 
I was happy to drive it. And that obviously means without taking anything that I would recognize as a risk. Um, and I can remember the single most memorable thing was coming out the chicane at the start of this lap. And, you know, you obviously have to be very, very gentle with it. It's only got four gears, uh, so in first and second. Um, but coming out the chicane, accelerating hard through second, um, and then putting into third, I'm now basically where the sort of finish line is. So I'm, I'm, I'm getting quite near the corner at the end of the straight. Uh, I'm at the top end of third. It's probably doing 120, 130 miles an hour. And I think, okay, it'll, it'll definitely have traction now. So for the first time, I can put my foot all the way to the floor. And it just lit them up. You can just, you can just hear, you just, you know, you can see on the, you can just see the revs go whoop. And you can, and, and, and I can just feel that the, the rear tires just light up at 120, 130 miles an hour in third gear. Poor bloody hell. I think, um, one or two of our friends watching from the pit wall at the time said to each other, the clutch is slipping. No. Tire <laughs> slipping. Tire slipping. And it was, wow. uh, it was, uh, but, but the other thing was, it, it was completely undramatic. You know, if you'd said to me, you're going to spin the wheels of a 917, 30, 120 mile, whatever, I wouldn't have got in the thing. But in fact, you know, I heard it and I saw it on the rev counter, but in the car, it was, it was nothing. It was absolutely nothing at all. So apart from traction and all that power in such a light car, what, what are you managing? What's the sort of trickiest thing to deal with around the lap? Uh, the trickiest thing is, is, you know, is, is, I mean, the, the chassis is not a problem. You'd be, you'd be amazed. Um, the car had great grip, um, great brakes, all that was sorted. So the only thing that you are, yeah, so I mean, traction, obviously, but more than anything else, you're just managing the boost. Um, and when it's on boost, it's actually quite easy to modulate. So you've just got to keep the revs up and you've got to accept that before the boost comes in, um, there's going to be a bit of a wait. Um, and you know, it was nothing like as bad as um, the early turbo car, the 91710, uh, which was apparently a bit of a monster. And they'd really got on top of the turbocharging much better by the time the 91730 came along. Um, but yeah, um, I mean, obviously, you wouldn't want all the boost to turn out halfway through a corner. But, you know, you'd have to be an idiot um, to get yourself into that situation. Um, it was, I suppose, to that extent, a bit of a point at the squirt machine. Uh, you couldn't balance it like you'd want to, like you'd be able to balance a you know, a sports car 970. God, I sound like I'm some kind of expert in this. I'm not. I'm just an idiot who's driven this thing for a few laps. But um, um, yeah, it's more but, than I've done. It's, it's, it's but, fascinating but, but, but to hear the, anyway. But, but the thing is, is that you have to think about all this stuff if you're not going to crash the car. You know, the, the, you're, you're not sitting there thinking, I'm going to break the lap record. I'm going to impress a load of people. You're just thinking, don't crash the car. Um, because I mean, you know, even if it didn't technically end your career, I would be so ashamed of myself. I'd walk away from the business. I could never. Be You'd have to end again. it yourself, wouldn't you? Yeah. yeah. So, so yeah. So that was that. Um, yes, and that was obviously Metzger's engine. Bloody hell! That's incredible. His yeah, his that amazing engine in that incredible car, and you're so fortunate to yes. to have driven the 917 a couple of times. Yes, but I don't. But, but when I was your age, I hadn't driven one. So there's time yet. There is hope. There is hope yet. Um, okay. Well, you, you did mention mention it a little early on. There's another engine that is actually called the Metzger engine, um, which has nothing to do with 917s. Um, it's it's actually the flat six that it, it was in the the GT1 car originally. Is that right? Yeah. Um, I mean, it's it's based on all sorts of things. I mean, you know, people sort of think that someone just sits down and think, "I'll do an engine now." Uh, that's that's not actually what happens. You look at what you've got and you use components from here there. Uh, and everywhere and you know its origins go back to um you know the 959 and the 956 uh, and the idea of having water-cooled cylinder heads um for those cars and it kind of evolved but i i, I think sort of in sort of common parlance most people think of the 
uh, of the 9-11 GT1, which was the sort of, it wasn't really, in, well, it was a bit of, there were, there were bits of 9-11 in it, um, certainly in the front end, it was, but it was the sort of mid-engine prototype with which Porsche contested Le Mans as a factory team in 96, 97, and actually won it in 98 um and yeah and so that has the sort of it's the engine with the proper dry sump um with the you know the 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 external oil tank not a sort of split sump um you know sitting at the bottom of the engine um and then obviously that was it became famous because that was the engine that provided the basis of the gt3 the first the 996 gt3 and whenever that was 1999 i think yeah and it and it was it continued to be used by that so GT3, GT3 RS dynasty, right up, as you said, up until the RS4 litre in 2011. Yeah, I, I, and the irony being, you know, by the time the first of these cars, by the time the first Porsche GT1 had appeared in 1990, Metz had already retired. You know, um, so it, it is his engine, but, um, you know, it's, it is amazing how it, it was so good Um uh, that it just lived on and and the reason it was so good and i remember talking to um andy preuninger who many of you will know is the kind of you know the engineering guru at visac who's um who is you know the man he's kind of mr gt3 um and saying to him you know why are you still using this this old engine when porsche keep on making all these new flow and he said well because it's the metzger engine he said it is so strong it is so highly developed. It was so brilliantly conceived from the get-go. I mean, to the extent, why wouldn't you use it? You know, we know it inside out. We know what we can do to it. We know we haven't got to the limit of its capability. So they just kept on using it. Um, and, you know, and, and clever old them, because as we know, Porsche did some, you know, a non-Metzger, very much a non-Metzger engine for, you know, the normal 996s and 997s, as, as you know, lots of people uh, listening to this will know you know they have problems with intermediate shafts and rear main oil seals and goodness knows what and ball scoring as well yeah exact ball scoring as well um but if you had a gt3 or in fact a turbo because the 996 and i think just the first generation of 997 turbos they were all metzger engines too uh, and they don't have any of those problems funnily enough it's it, it, yeah it's incredible isn't it and you were talking earlier about um a certain era of Porsche competition cars combining like nothing else huge power and performance with durability yeah and they're the same attributes that 100% that were in that Mezco engine many many years later yeah yeah and when you know if you remember when Porsche did the 991 GT3 um, which was the first GTN GT3 engine not to be a Metzger engine. Um, you know they had some issues with that, didn't they? Mm. Um, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and it's an amazing engine now, um, and, and, and all power to them. But um, it just—I think it just goes to show how difficult it is to do that sort of engine to the standard that um, you know that Metzger was just able to you know arrive at through his own genius. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. And that, yeah, the thing about that engine um, in four litre um, guys, as it was in, in that run out GT3 RS, with fi- 500 horsepower from a four litre, six cylinder, normally aspirated engine. Um, I mean, it's, it's extraordinary for that to be in any way reliable, isn't it? it yeah. Wow. It's, it, it's a remarkable feat. Um, okay, well, well, we'll talk about something else in a moment. But to finish off this chat about uh, Hans Mesker. I just want to ask what you think about this, Andrew, because I mean, he's he's such a highly regarded engineer, and he he has 
effectively an engine named after him. Um, <laughs> yes. And I just, I just wonder if, if we're going to see his like again. I mean, are any of today's engineers going to be sort of revered in the same way? I mean, you've mentioned Andy Preuninger, um, I suppose, that there's a chance, and uh, Valisa as well. Uh, there are also sort of high-profile test and development drivers like Matt Becker and Chris Goodwin. But I, I just I don't get the sense that we'll be putting those guys up on a pedestal quite like we have done Hans Mesger. I, I know what you mean. Um, I think there are a few reasons for that. I think there's a sort of um, a corporate culture issue. I think companies tend to be more collegiate in their approaches particularly to publicizing individuals so more people tend i think the credit get, tends to get shared around more people but i think the business of engine design is just so immensely complex now in a way it simply wasn't back in metzger's day with all the compliance all the emissions all the homologation all this stuff you know you couldn't just say you know this is fred's engine because you know fred's probably an army of people um so but, but I do wonder whether people um, will come to recognise that actually having an engine named after a person and having that kind of revered quality about it actually isn't, a, it isn't such a bad thing for your brand as a whole. Um, you know, we, we think of Ferrari, don't we? We think of Colombo engines and Lampredi engines and that sort of thing. And they're all, they're all part and part of the Ferrari mystique um and yeah um so uh, but, but i can't see it i just think that, that time possibly um has gone mm, yeah I, I i do tend to agree with you um okay well there we go from the sublime hans mesker's career and his extraordinary contribution to I know where we're going. competition cars <laughs> i know where you're going with this to the ridiculous <laughs> um I, I i want to talk i, I wrote a piece um, about the new BMW 4 Series uh, and what I consider to be an offensively ugly front grille. <laughs> I mean... <I'd, laughs> Come on, tell us what you really mean, Dan. Yeah, well, yeah, there we go. I, as I wrote in that piece, I actually didn't really want to get drawn into that whole conversation because I just get the sense that BMW's designers are trying to be provocative and they want people to you know, debate the merits of, of their work and, uh, and all this sort of stuff. And I just find, I, I feel like I've bitten, basically. I took the bait and I've, I've bitten. Um, but I, it got to a point where I just couldn't help myself because I'm sort of so offended by that enormous two-part front grille. Um, I think it looks terrible. Even worse, actually, when there's a number plate slapped across it because... Ah, oh, okay, that's interesting. You I think thought, it looks better, don't you? I thought it was so bad that anything that sort of gets rid of a bit of it um, and sort of divides it, bisects it, makes it... makes it. But, oh, but you actually think that makes it look worse. Well, I, I, OK, I'm not sure if it looks better or worse, but I think it indicates to me that... It, it almost says that they forgot there was supposed to be a number plate there or they were sort of so determined to press on with this divisive design that it didn't matter to them that actually people are only ever going to see it with a number plate slapped across it. I, I, I get worked up about all this stuff. Do you, do you think, I mean, so can you put into words, and I'm not, not putting you on the spot here because I'm not sure that I could, but is it just the size of the thing or is there a proportionality to it or is there something offensive in the detail? Can you sort of say what it is about that grill that you dislike so much? Okay, well, I, I'll, um, I will answer that in a moment. I, I think actually... I, 
I can't put my finger on it necessarily. I, to me, it just looks so ugly. Um, and I, 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 yeah, I've not really interrogated it any more than that. But actually, what I find frustrating is BMW's approach to design at the moment, intentionally trying to be divisive. I've, there's this quote uh, that was published in Car Magazine uh, last year from BMW's head of brand design. He's talking about being divisive, about about design that divides opinion, okay? And he says, if you want to make recognisable design, you have to do this to polarise because good design is about a very strong and unique character. It's not about beauty. So he's Disagree. he's saying that, exactly. He's saying there that cars, a well-designed car isn't beautiful. It's divisive. But I mean, I could design because I'm a really rubbish designer. I could design a really ugly car. It would stand out. Everybody would notice it. It wouldn't make it a well-designed car. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And I absolutely refute the point that to be to create character, to create individuality, design has to be divisive. And, you know, I, the, 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 the car that I compared it to, or the company that I compared it to um, in that post on DN was Polestar, which for me is perhaps more so than anybody else at the moment, is showing how classical, beautiful, understated design can stand out, can create individuality and character. Absolutely. Um, and, uh, you know, and you, you put those two cars side by side and there's, there's just no competition. The other thing that I want to add to all of this is that, quite brilliantly, and I loved watching this unfold, was that car design superstar Frank Stephenson because sort of weighed in in the comments section on that post. Um, and what I noticed first of all was that he he was responding to everybody who was agreeing with my point of view. Um, he, he was basically just replying with a whole stream of emojis, um, <laughs> you know, which was just brilliant to watch. And then he actually wrote a comment in response to somebody else, um, which I'll read to you now. He said, just before you do that, can we, can we just say, just for anybody who doesn't know, Frank Stephenson, he's like, a, he's, he's, a, he's a really, really nice bloke, but in design terms, he designed everything from, you know, the, the, the first of this, of the sort of BMW minis to the McLaren P1. I mean, he's just, he's just the man. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. He's he. Yeah, his his work can be seen everywhere, um, and and he he literally wrote this in a comment uh, in response to a, a, a DN follower. Uh, he said, "The geometric design of the kidney grill clashes with the organic design of the body." I get the feeling that different designers worked on this car, and none of them liked or agreed with each other, <laughs> which is. And actually, I mean, that was a bit of a, a sort of eureka moment for me when I read it because, yeah, that ugly brash bold geometric grill does sit pretty uncomfortably on the front of a fairly sort of actually derivative but organic and smooth body i I think one of the sadness is i actually i may be in a minority of one here but i actually think the rest of the car looks quite good um and i i think there was an opportunity to do i mean to me it's the most distinctive four series that that we've seen, um, largely for the wrong reasons out the front, but the rest of it, I think, is I think it's certainly a a fluent and proficient piece of design. Um, and uh, yeah, and they go, and, and he's absolutely right, of course, because he's right. He's you know he's, he's frank, isn't he? But um, yeah, it's it it, it 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 is extraordinary, and it's like 
to me, it smacks of some kind of insecurity. It's like, well, we're BMW, and what's BMW most famous for? Well, it's most famous for that grill. So we'll just make it bigger, and then people will think, yeah, that's a bin. That's how we make people recognise what we do, not by making beautifully proportioned, elegant um, cars. You know, if you look at the Polestar, you know, you can see an entire design language in that, um, which they will go on and develop and evolve, and everybody will know a Polestar when they see one. You don't need to put two great teeth on the front of it like that um and it's just sad i think it, it, yeah it just suggests to me that bmw have sort of run out of ideas um I, 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 on the polestar point you can see and also in modern volvos you can see a very clear and cohesive sort of objective when they set out to design those cars they there's a you you'll hate this word but there's a very uh, clear and distinct language whereas with lots of the the german stuff that i'm seeing at the moment bmws in particular but also certain modern audis it's as though they don't have a very clear idea and so they just keep designing keep designing keep doing a bit more a bit more here a bit more there and you end up with these sort of conflicting quite fussy cars um and i'm i feel like i'm seeing more and more of that stuff at the moment um on the, I, I just want to do a little bit of sort of horn tooting at the moment because the fact that Stephenson weighed in on that conversation I think is one of the reasons that I I love doing DN so much because it's out there in the sort of public domain where these industry figures exist it's on Instagram um okay and so you you won't get someone like Frank Stephenson signing up to an internet forum to respond to a stream of comments or you you won't get a guy like that signing up for a website to to respond uh, to an article. But because these guys are already on Instagram, spending time there, um, it's quite natural for them to come over to DN and uh, and respond to what we have to say. I, I, I think it also, I think it says a lot about um, the DN audience too. I think that um, people like him, I hope at least, um, you know, identify, you know, sometimes, you know, if you go on, um, you know, without naming names, other magazine websites, and you look at the comments, they just seem to be forums for people to hurl abuse at each other. Um, and to say, no, you're completely wrong about that. Oh, that's rubbish. Or, you know, you're thick or whatever. And, you know, we are so lucky. We just don't get that. We just get, you know, properly enthusiastic, like-minded individuals who just love talking about you know, about the cars that we love. And, and, and I think and I hope that that's why, you know, somebody with his profile um, is happy to, you know, just be out there and among this lot because he, he, he identifies kindred spirits. And it's, as you say, it's one of the absolute best things about Dean. It's basically got nothing to do with you or me. <laughs> yeah, I think we sort of accepted that a little while ago. <laughs> well, there we go. It should be its own thing, though, shouldn't it, with its own momentum? Um, right. OK, well, Let's move on to one final post. Um, and uh, Andrew, you wrote a piece about uh, uh, homologation specials and how they very often make the best um, performance road cars. Yeah. Um, and uh, but actually, what I want to ask you, you about is the car that inspired that post because you spent a day driving it last week sometime, and that's that gorgeous Alfa Romeo GTA. Yeah. Yeah. Um... I think I probably enjoy driving anything at the moment. But uh, so the, the GTA, it was, it was just something that, I mean, I hadn't talked about it much because it was just something that came out of the blue. Um, and I got to do this journey um, 
in it um pretty much across england and I, i've always i've just loved gtas um you know when you look on the internet at you know great homologation specials they never come up um everybody talks about you know everything from rs200 fords to integrales and you know all the other cars that we know uh, and e30 m3s and so on and, 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 and rightly so but um it's uh it to me it's one of the very first and one of the very greatest and what i find so fascinating about it is just the extent that alfa romeo went to to turn it you know to make it um homologation ready so this if people don't know was a car that alfa romeo built in 1965 and 66 they only made 500 of them because that was the number that they were required to homologate the racing version um and it was based on the lovely beautiful um steel-bodied um julia sprint but they just did, I mean, so they completely rebodied the thing in aluminium and pop riveted it all together. The inner body was made, it was made out of steel, but it was made out of specially thin steel. They put in Perspex windows. They developed a twin plug cylinder head for it. They've used mad stuff like there's magnet, it's got magnesium wheels, magnesium sump, magnesium bell housing, magnesium cam covers. Um, it's got different door handle. I mean, every, it had, bespoke suspension brakes just the whole thing they just gone through it from end to end and when you look at it it just looks like a julia sprint gt and it, and, and and if you don't know uh, well you'll know soon enough when you get in it because it weighs about 750 kilos um and you know the race versions have 170 180 horsepower these days and in standard street version it had uh, you know 115 horsepower which whatever it was 55 years ago um in a car that light was just amazing and and to drive it it is it's everything i want an alfa romeo to be it's beautiful it's light it's delicate it's massively responsive the feel you get from it the steering you've got that amazing twin cam engine up the front um the balance of the thing um uh, i mean the, the, the rear suspension actually is is kind of all wrong um geometrically um but you know you, you, it, what it does mean is you is, is you spend a lot of your time going sideways as well um and that's never and that's never boring um it's just you know it's just beautiful and brilliant and rare and special and yeah so lucky who was it that described the gta as a not very poor man's ferrari 250 gto I don't know, but um, <laughs> they were right. <laughs> There's something in it, isn't there? I, I think it's, yeah. I, yes, I think it probably is. I've always thought it, funnily enough, as being a not very poor man's short wheelbase. But yes, it, it, it's, it's yeah, okay. something like that, isn't it? It's, it's uh, you, you, you get, I mean, I would think point to point, it would scare a short wheelbase witless. I think you'd need to drive a 250 short wheelbase, a standard steel short wheelbase, very rapidly indeed to get away from a well-driven gta um and and and, and but what i love about it is it, it is just based and it's and it's broadening this out to to all homologation specials you know we all know of you know mad homologation specials like you know the road going nissan r390 or the toyota gt1 or um the porsche gt1 but those aren't to me homologation specials where cars get made in quantities of one or less than 10 um to me the great homologation specials are cars like the gta where the base unit is a normal car um be that car a 911 with a case of the in the like the 2.7 rs or an e30 m3 or an alpha julia sprint um or a ford sierra um yeah to me that's that's where they the magic of the homologation gt lies mm. 
Yeah, I completely agree. And uh, you you ended that post um, much to many to many people's surprise. Actually, oh yes, I looking know. at the comments by talking about a Toyota Yaris. Yeah, I mean, okay, I was being a little bit pro- pro- provocative, but you know, I mean, just because you know these cars have become revered in the past, we can't be sniffy about the future and just go because it's not one of them because it's ahead no. rather than behind. Therefore, and it's you know, and it's it's a Toyota Yaris. You know, therefore, it's going to be. It's going to be rubbish, um, or it's not going to be as good. Or in it, it, at some stage in the future, when we look back on it, you know, it's never going to get on any of those lists. None of us have driven it. None of us know. Um, you know, let's find out. So, yeah. So for people who, who who aren't necessarily aware, this is the Toyota GR Yaris that's been announced, and it's I, th- I think it's probably it's due to reach the first owners later on this year. I think um, it's a four wheel drive Yaris with a turbocharged engine. I think about two hundred and sixty horsepower. Exactly right. And, a manual gearbox and you can manual have gearbox and you can have lsds in both axles um if you spec the right option pack uh and it's it does seem to be genuinely a homologation car for toyota's world rally championship assault um and it's been so long since there's been any showroom model that has anything at all really to do um with a proper wrc car um and geeks like you and I, Andrew, we're just sort of beside ourselves with excitement for this thing. Yeah, I, I, but also it just—it just to me, it just smells right. You know, if you look at you know at, at the option packs and the spec and the you know and, and, and the crazy differentials you get, you know, the, the, the options aren't sort of you know whether you have active or passive cruise control or you know or, 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 or air conditioning or climate control. These are this is proper weapons grade stuff, and all of that just you know they're either playing a blinder um or this is a car that you know means business um and and until i'm perverted with incontrovertible evidence to, to the contrary i i'm 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 gonna hope it's that oh god i'm so looking forward to driving it i hope that happens soon um oh good well there we go let's 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 leave that one there um and before we go anywhere just a quick reminder um to all you lovely lot listening that if you want to if you feel like um it's worth your time and your money please do head to patreon.com forward slash drive nation where you'll be able to pledge as much or as little money as you like each month to help support dn's growth essentially um we we've got big ambitions for this thing we really want to take it places um we want to do more with it we want to bring in other voices as well um and a small contribution each month will really help that to happen uh, help it happen and it will speed up the rates i mean yeah I'll, I'll, we we like all um freelance journalists have you know two problems of time and money um and there's never enough of either and any help you can give us with you can give us with one will shorten the amount of the other that we need to take and it'll just make better stuff happen sooner it, it is as simple as that and there is some exclusive patron only content in it for everybody who does contribute um so that's that's patreon.com forward slash drive nation uh right well let's leave that one there andrew um that was good fun and to everybody listening we'll talk to you again this time next week look forward to it very much uh, all the best to everyone i'll catch up with you then the drive nation podcast with dan prosser and andrew frankel Mom. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 